Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for being with us here on Wednesday, September the 13th, the big night coming up for you. You're watching ADH and of course, I'm Alan Jones. I've been saying for months, and I said it again last night, if the Albanese government doesn't understand it's in big trouble, then it's obviously listening to the wrong people. But then governments are always surrounded by sycophants telling them what they want to hear. I'll say it here as it is. We learned today the obvious, a spike in petrol prices and soaring power bills, petrol prices as in energy prices, and soaring power bills, energy prices, have left families more worried about the state of their finances than at any other time in the past three decades. As cost of living pressures mount, Westpac's latest household sentiment survey showed the obvious, a further deterioration in consumer confidence. This is life under labour. Westpac's chief economist, Bill Evans, said since the survey, that is the household sentiment survey, since the survey began in 1974, the only comparable period of such sustained weakness in household confidence was during the recession of the 1990s. That's households. But then we learn on the same day, today, that Australian business activity has plummeted to near record lows. More companies, sadly, going to the wall. Energy prices through the roof. Business to business invoices slipped 36% year on year in August to its lowest since January 2017. As one writer said, reflecting an economy spluttering to keep its head above water. But look what Bowen is doing to energy costs. Tony Burke on industrial relations. I told you last night, these people are inflicting pain. And then there's this divisive voice. Marcia Langton has been front and centre advocating a yes vote. Now she's so rattled, she's accused the no case of racism and stupidity. Where are you, Albo? I haven't heard you condemning that language. You've always said this is a painless and straightforward issue, warm and fuzzy. And Marcia Langton, Professor Marcia Langton, one of your key yes advocates, is now telling us that if we oppose the voice, we're racist and we're stupid. Prime Minister, Sir Thomas More said over 500 years ago that silence betokens consent. Does your silence, Prime Minister, your failure to criticise Marcia Langton indicate that you actually agree with her? I also told you last night that this Qantas farce is only just beginning. So obviously the board must go. Today, Qantas has lost in the High Court its appeal over the sacking of 1,700 baggage handlers and cleaners during coronavirus. Now, Qantas maintained, this is the third time they've been before the courts on this year, I'd add, uh, Qantas maintained the decision was made for sound commercial reasons. The Transport Workers Union said the sackings were in breach of the Fair Work Act, which prohibits actions that interfere with workers' rights. Qantas lost twice in the federal court when the case was brought by the TWU, Qantas then went to the High Court, where today they were unanimously booted out the door. Unanimously. Now, 1,700 baggage handlers and cleaners, what damage will this cause? Will be seeking compensation from Qantas. More than 1,700. Good luck, Richard Goiter. 
This has been a two-year battle. Qantas argued the sackings were not illegal. They've been defeated unanimously in the High Court. You want to know who endorsed these decisions in the first place? The TWU has called for the Qantas chairman, Richard Goyder, to step down immediately and said, quote, the final act of this board should be to strip Alan Joyce of his bonuses and then the board should follow him out the door. Lawyers for the TWU have said Qantas would have banked $80 million in capital expenditure savings and $103 million a year in ongoing savings as a result of the sackings. Now, let me say, business bottom lines are important, but there has to be room for sensible and compassionate treatment of those who produce the profits, workers and customers. Trouble for ex-minister Stuart Robert, the Scott Morrison confidant, the Joint Committee of Public Accounts and Audit has been inquiring into Stuart Robert concerning his contact with companies seeking major contracts with government agencies that he oversaw as a minister. The Joint Committee has split along party lines, but the majority decision is to refer Stuart Robert to the National Anti-Corruption Commission. The committee chair, Labor MP Julian Hill said, amongst other things, the committee considers that in the light of the serious and systemic nature of the allegations, an agency with compulsory questioning and document gathering and investigatory powers should take up the matter so that these questions may be properly assessed, unquote. Now, Stuart Robert is off to the National Anti-Corruption Commission, but he must be assumed innocent until otherwise proven. He said, there's no surprise the committee has made the recommendation given that it was dominated by Labor members. He said, quote, a Labor-dominated committee using parliamentary privilege and process to even up political scores and using the NAWC as a political weapon? Who would have thought? What an obviously transparent political payback, he said. What a farce. I think Stuart Robert, by the way, does have a point. Just back to Qantas and the Prime Minister, it continues to defy belief. We now learn today that key departments of trade and treasury were not asked for advice on the decision to block Qatar Airways' bid for more flights into Australia. In response to a demand from the Senate, Treasurer Chalmers and Trade Minister Farrell were both forced to admit they were not consulted. The Prime Minister wasn't consulted. The Foreign Minister wasn't consulted. Oh, nothing to see here, says the government. They think we're stupid. I mentioned last night this brand new spick and span housing initiative by the Albanese government. They're going to build 30,000 homes in the first five years. Well, the Bureau of Statistics have released figures yesterday showing the increase in permanent and long-term arrivals to Australia between January and the end of July, that's six months, 317,800. 317,800 new arrivals. 6,000 homes a year is the big new housing policy. That'll go a long way to putting a roof over their head. The AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver said what I said last night, we'll need between 220 and 230,000 new homes to meet demand this year. Obviously the private sector have got to build them, but we struggle to build all up 180,000 when we already have a shortfall of 150,000 and a surge in the Australian population. I said last night, this so-called housing policy is no policy at all. Now, educational standards in this country have never been worse and they're not improving. And all government talks about is money. 
We learned today that teacher salaries have soared five times faster in Australia than, than across the industrialised world over the past decade. Australian public school teacher wages grew 15% in real terms in 10 years, compared to 3% across the OECD between 2010 and 2022. Now, I'm all for teachers being well paid, but the scoreboard is woeful. If we stop teaching the words of welcome to country and stop teaching kids that their country was invaded and they don't own the place, and stop reading from Greta Thunberg's hymn book and stop denying the biological truth in relation to boys and girls. And if we started teaching what these children need to know, I mean, you wouldn't mind what teachers are being paid. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Well, let's go to Peggy in the United States of America where things have certainly changed, but the Biden catastrophe continues. It is hard to know in relation to President Biden where to start. He ended a press conference on Sunday after two days at the G20 summit by telling reporters he had to go to bed. Then his speech to service members and first responders on the anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, President Joe Biden falsely claimed he was at ground zero the day after the Twin Towers fell in Manhattan. He was speaking at a military base in Alaska, and he said, quote, I join you on this solemn day to renew our sacred vows. Never forget, never forget, we never forget. Each of us, each of those precious lives stolen too soon when evil attacked. Ground zero in New York. And then I remember standing there the next day and looking at the building, and I felt like I was looking through the gates of hell, unquote. Well, that's a palpable untruth. Let's go though to Peggy in the United States of America where things have changed overnight. And the Republican US House Speaker in the last 24 hours, Kevin McCarthy, is now calling for a formal impeachment inquiry into President Biden, citing allegations of corruption relating to his family's business dealings. Peggy, thank you for your time, but this means, does it not, that the Republicans are sick and tired of the attacks on Donald Trump and have now taken the gloves off. Well, thank you, Alan, for having me on. And thank you for covering this because this is so vitally important to the United States and to the world. And to your point, yes, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy launched today what's called an um, impeachment inquiry. So it doesn't mean they're actually going to move forward with an impeachment, but it gives them broader powers to investigate whether or not impeachable crimes were committed. And from his statement today, he says, I don't make this decision lightly, regardless of party or who you voted for, these facts should concern all Americans. And it's about influence peddling. It's about corruption, obstruction, and abuse of power. These are massive accusations that have been launched against President Biden. And the, the House Speaker and the Republicans in the House think that they have the evidence yeah. and the proof to back right. up the accusations yeah. and pursue with this inquiry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Peggy. And, and McCarthy, to add to what you just said, said there are credible allegations about President Biden's conduct during his terms as vice president from 2009 to 2017 that, and I quote McCarthy's words, paint a picture of a culture of corruption. And he said, I'm directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. And then the words that Peggy just quoted, I don't make this decision lightly. The American people deserve to know that public officers 
are not for sale. He said, McCarthy said, through our investigations, we have found that President Biden did lie to the American people about his own knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. Now, Peggy, as I understand it, the House Oversight Committee found last month that when Mr. Biden was vice president, the Biden family and business entities related to his son, Hunter Biden, received more than 20 million US dollars in payments from foreign entities, including from Russia and Ukrainian oligarchs. Now, hello, this is very, very serious stuff, surely. It is. And there's evidence that up to nine members of the Biden family have also received payments. And the Democrats continue to say there's no evidence. But what more evidence do you need than the IRS whistleblowers, than these bank transactions, than Hunter Biden's laptop with photos and emails and pictures? And, you know, every trail leads right to this Biden family. And it, as Kevin McCarthy said, there's a pattern there of corruption and we need to get to the bottom of it. You know, this could potentially be the fourth time that an American president has been impeached. Andrew Johnson, who was the 17th president. And then, of course, we have Clinton, we have Trump. Nixon left office before he was about to be impeached. And one interesting thing that you touched on is he would be the first president to be impeached for actions that were committed primarily when he was vice president of the United States. But the ramifications of those and that pattern has continued on into his presidency which begs the question, like we've said many times, is he compromised by that's these right, actions, right. by these behaviors? Right. Well, the House know, Republicans it, think well, that he well, is. Yeah, I mean, when you ask, is he compromised? Well, why on earth? Because you and I discussed this last week and the Republicans are now arguing that Biden used pseudonyms in private emails with his son and business associates, associates to conceal allegedly corrupt activity with foreign leaders. And, and look, just to clarify Peggy's point earlier, we must make the point there have been more than 60 impeachment investigations in the history of American politics. Only three presidents have been impeached. Donald Trump was impeached twice in 2019 and 2021, but he was acquitted both times. So the House Judiciary Committee, Peggy, just to get procedures here, Jim Gordon and the House Oversight Committee Chairman Jamie Comer will now lead this impeachment investigation. Am I right on that? That's correct. And so they'll have to see where the evidence leads them. And, you know, when Kevin McCarthy says that he doesn't start this process lightly, it's true because the likelihood of him getting two thirds of a vote in the Senate where it's Democrat majority is fairly unlikely. And so at that point, then the Democrats could say, well, they looked into it and there was nothing there and in essence exonerate Biden. But Kevin McCarthy also had to take into consideration what the Republicans who will be running for re-election also would be asked by their constituencies. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence and they would be asked why they didn't investigate this corruption, which the American people need to know whether or not these facts are there. Absolutely. And of course, when any criticism is made of Biden, the Democrats then whinge about a conspiracy and they're trying yet every tactic to deny Donald Trump the right to stand in next year's presidential election. All right, Peggy, that's big news. But just back to this business about Biden saying he stood at ground zero in New York the day after 9-11 when he actually went to ground zero nine days after the attacks. Peggy, forget the impeachment stuff. Surely the Democrats are going to have to do something quickly. I mean, the White House was asked about the claim and apparently provided a photo and an article 
showing that Biden, then a senator for Delaware, toured Ground Zero on September 29 days later. And Peggy, I understand that a White House official then emailed CNN a comment on the condition of anonymity, which said, quote, the president first visited the World Trade Center nine days after the September 11 terrorist attacks as part of a bipartisan delegate from the Senate. Peggy, has this bloke been caught out lying again? Because in the past, Biden has fiddled with the truth. He has, and people brush it off on the left saying, oh, it's just Joe being Joe. But there's only a couple explanations you can give for it. Either Joe Biden doesn't know he's lying, or he doesn't care that he's lying, or he thinks that the American people don't know or care. But the American people do know, we do care, we're watching, and we don't appreciate being lied to repeatedly by the president of the United States and by his staff, who not only covers it up, lies along with him, but then blames the very people who ask the questions about these yeah. inconsistencies yeah. with the truth. Yeah, I mean, last month in one speech, one speech, last month, in only one speech, three lies. He claimed to have witnessed a bridge collapse in Pittsburgh in 2022, when he actually visited the site more than six hours after the collapse. He falsely claimed his grandfather had died just days prior to his own birth in the same hospital, when in fact his grandfather had died more than a year earlier and he was before the, earlier than he was born, but he died in another state. And he then repeated the false story about a supposed conversation with an Amtrak conductor, that's that train and bus outfit, an Amtrak conductor. He said he had a conversation with him, but the bloke was dead at the time the story would have taken place. Peggy goes on and on and he gets away with it. I mean, in 2021, 2022, he falsely claimed to have been arrested. So it makes him look like a hero. You know, I was out there protesting. I was arrested during a civil rights process. He'd previously said that an officer had taken him home from the protest. Uh, how much longer, well, does this get any publicity? I mean, the list could go on and on, including him saying that he graduated at the top of his class when he barely passed yes, it out yes, through his yes, graduation. Yes. But, you know, the people we do see through this, and it would be funny if it was grandpa in the nursing home, but this is the president of the United States, arguably the leader of the free world. We're not laughing because this is dangerous. And we know that our allies are watching and increasingly worried about the strength Correct. of America. Correct. And we know that our enemies are watching us and know that America is weak right now. And we wonder what they will do to take mm. advantage of that weakness that they see, that everybody sees. This is the thing about sort of pumping up his ego, it just seems to me he knows he's lying. He falsely claimed that he, quote, used to drive an 18-wheeler. 18-wheeler, can you imagine how big that is? The White House covered up and clarified that he once had a job driving a school bus, which is hardly an 18-wheeler. And then he claimed falsely to have visited the Pittsburgh synagogue where worshippers were killed in a 2018 mass shooting, when in fact, he'd merely spoken to its rabbi by phone. He never visited the synagogue. And Peggy, didn't he falsely claim to have visited Iraq and Afghanistan as president? He made no visits as president. He did as vice president. I mean, is the bloke a liar or in such cognitive decline? Now, surely they can't have it both ways, can they? If they want to argue against cognitive decline, that he isn't in cognitive decline, he must be a liar. And if they argue that he's a liar, right. hey? He argued he's a liar. Well, he shouldn't be president no of the United States. Eh? Here for them. And really, when you see at the core of this, 
every story, it's all about him. And like you said, he's trying to make himself feel good or beef himself up or build his ego or impress people. And it's just so unnecessary. The role of commander in chief is to be compassionate, to care about the other people, to be a public servant. And there's nothing about service when you talk about yourself insistently. And, you know, we saw in Maui when he talked about his little kitchen fire, when there was wide devastation there. And so he really is selfish to talk about himself. And he's playing us all for fools, thinking that we're not catching him every time he lies. Absolutely. On Sunday, just to give you a picture where we are here, on Sunday, which was two days after the G20 summit, he was at a press conference. After 26 minutes, he uttered the 12 words that reinforced one of his biggest political liabilities, his age. He just said, I don't know about you, but I'm going to bed. Hmm? All this after a trip spanning India and Vietnam, it was meant to show that he remains up to the task of being Commander-in-Chief and he's a globe-trotting leader of the free world. But after taking five questions, he said he was going to bed. A spokeswoman cut off a rambling answer and then you hear this elevator music taking him off the stage. Now, whoever owns the female voice that cut him off is doing him a favour. He was talking rubbish. Just have a look at this. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. It sounds like he already went to yeah, bed, and I think talked, whoever cut him off did all about, of us a favour that we didn't have to listen to him. Just hang on, Peggy. Hang on a minute. Hang on. about making sure that the third world, the, uh, excuse me, third world, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Southern Hemisphere had access to change. It had access. It wasn't confrontational at all. You can thank, thank you, everybody. This ends thank, the calendar press thank, conference. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, oh, Peggy. And, and the press continue to say there's no evidence that Joe Biden is not worthy of standing for the presidency again. What? I mean, that is un... He was absolutely talking rubbish when that woman inter interrupted him and then he didn't know where he was and they played some music, get off the stage, eh? This is the head of the free world. Well, I think she did everyone a favour by um, cutting that off because it was painful to watch. And, you know, frankly, it sounds like he already went to bed. And, you know, when you listen to the White House and their question about why the president isn't doing very many campaign events or isn't out in public very often or doing interviews, Karine Jean-Pierre consistently says, well, you just have to watch him. Just watch Joe being president. And we are watching, and I'm hoping that America <laughs> will make a very different choice in 2025. Yeah, we're watching Joe. We're looking for him. We can't see where he is. Just come back to this business about uh, the Biden family influence peddling. Is there a danger here for the Democrats that if this goes on as it seems to be, that this influence peddling could well end up neutralising what the Democrats saw as a liability attaching to Trump's indictments. What do you think of that? Well, it could not only neutralize it, but it could actually really backfire because when you start looking at the amount of evidence for these Trump cases, and it's really thin, it's on really shaky legal standing. And if the if the House Republicans can produce everything that they say that they're going to, and the evidence is so overwhelming, this really is going to backfire. And by the way, people are going to see that 
oh, maybe this all this Trump um, inquiry was a distraction, mm. a distraction from the real story, mm. which is Joe Biden and his family influence peddling for potentially decades, capitalizing on his political power for their own personal gain. Yes. That and of course, is clearly an impeachable offense, yeah. whereas some of the other Trump things, even his impeachments, yeah. were on flimsy legal standards. Well, just before, just before we go, is there any evidence that you can pick up of panic within the Democrat administration. Polls showing job approval rating for Biden maximising at about 40%, sometimes it's in the 30s. Some in the media are saying Biden should announce that he won't run for a second term, but no Democrat of stature has been willing to say that. Are the Democrats still of the view that because Trump will be the Republican nominee, that he is the easiest Republican to beat because Joe Biden did it once? I think they thought that originally, but I think now they're getting very worried. And Joe Biden's approval rating is primarily in the 30s. Kamala Harris's is even lower, so she's not even a good option. And, you know, the polling for the two of them is bad enough. But the polling, I think, that really scared the left this past week was that every single major GOP candidate for president, including President Trump, is beating Joe Biden in the polling. And we know that these polls lean left. And so if they're already polling that Republicans are beating Joe Biden, the Democrats are very worried and they may not be talking about it yet in public, but we know behind the scenes, they are trying to figure out what they're going to do because Joe Biden may not be a viable candidate for Absolutely. them very much longer. Well said, Peggy. Well said, brilliantly covered. And we'll talk again next week. The focus, of course, has been on Trump, Trump, Trump. I can tell you something, the focus now is quickening and the pace is quickening and the heat is being applied to everyone associated with the Biden administration. That's Peggy Grandy, the former executive assistant to Ronald Reagan. If you thought we weren't in an energy crisis under this federal government, then you would be ignoring the proof that surrounds us. Most Australians would have noticed that one of the so-called energy solutions was to build two cables under Bass Strait. I mean, there is no end to this nonsense. It's sort of Alice in Wonderland stuff, this. Well, now the federal and Tasmanian governments have found that it would be, quote, preposterously expensive and financially unviable. We could have told them that before it started. From the initial estimate of 3.1 billion, B for billion, at best, at best guess, the cost now is 5.5 billion. So now they say, oh, well, we're going to build a single cable and it's called a visionary project, except the very sensible Victorian Energy Policy Centre Director, Professor Bruce Mountain, is arguing that even with half its capacity, it's economically flawed. And the unsolved issue, according to Pref Professor Mountain, is who will pay the preposterously expensive ongoing charges to use this marinous link? Supposedly a critical part of Australia's future electricity grid. The name marinous taken from the Latin relating to the sea. This goes underwater, it's meant to. This is when you get rid of coal and gas in this brain dead political world. Professor Mountain will of course be ignored by know-alls like Bowen, but Professor Mountain says at least $450 million a year will be needed and will have to be recovered from electricity consumers or taxpayers. Professor Mountain calls the cost an insurmountable problem, like everything associated with Bowen's renewable fantasy. Oh, then the snowy 2.0. Now we can't blame Bowen for that. A Turnbull fantasy. 
But politically, of course, Turnbull belongs on Bowen's side of the parliament, doesn't he? In 2017, Prime Minister Turnbull announced Snowy 2.0 at a cost of $2 billion and a completion date of 2021. By May 2022, there was a new completion deadline, 2026. In October last year, Florence, the 2,400-tonne tunnel boring machine, got stuck. November 2022, a Senate hearing is told, the cost is now $5.9 billion. Not Malcolm's $2 billion. Wasn't he supposed to know something about finance? May 2023, and the new deadline, May this year, is December 2028. August, last month, the cost, oh, it's gone now to $12 billion. But that doesn't include the $5 billion Hume Link transmission line project, which is meant to deliver the snowy power, if it ever materialises, to Sydney. Now, of course, government should cut its losses at this embarrassing wreck. Florence, the tunnel borer, weighs 2,400 tonnes. It's 140 metres long, supposed to be boring 50 kilometres of tunnel underneath the Kosciuszko National Park. But last year it hit soft rock, opening a sinkhole to the surface, and the dear old Florence got bogged, bogged, and she's been bogged for 10 months. Turnbull and Bowen singing from the same idiotic energy manuscript, renewable energy treated as biblical truth. Snowy Hydro is about the same status as the Marinus link between Tasmania and mainland Australia, hopeless and hopelessly expensive. Taxpayers' money just being ripped up on ideological stupidity. Well, you might remember I told you late last month, the Norwegian shipping company has banned electric, hybrid and hydrogen cars from its ferries and ships. After a risk analysis, it was concluded that the risk to the safety of the shipping fleet was too significant. If a vehicle catches fire, an electric vehicle, they say, that's what they're talking about, the fire can no longer be extinguished. And the risk for ships, according to this Norwegian shipping company, from the transport of electric cars has been a real concern since the Felicity Ace sank off the coast of Portugal last February. E-vehicles on board caught fire. The fire couldn't be extinguished. The massive ship sank, along with thousands of electric cars, including Porsche and Bentley Green vehicles. And I mentioned on this program last month that the head of Marine Consulting at Allianz, a marine insurance specialist, explained that the problem with electric vehicles is that the lithium-ion batteries in the cars can actually propagate the fire, igniting more vigorously as compared to conventional cars. I mentioned that the marine consulting specialist had said, quote, a single vehicle fire, that's electric vehicle, could prove catastrophic. Well, we're told that electric vehicle sales are soaring in Australia. And we're told that you can hook them up and charge them in your garage. Well, I hope you were watching the pictures on the TV news last night. If not, here they are. Look at this. Five cars were destroyed at Sydney Airport after a battery from a luxury electric car, look at that, burst into flames, engulfed the vehicle. Look at the pictures. The fire spread to another four vehicles. Apparently, the cars didn't belong to any individual. They were in a holding yard for a company. And the lithium-ion battery, the same battery that concerned the marine insurance specialist who investigated the fire off the coast of Portugal on a ship carrying e-vehicles. Same battery here at Sydney Airport, a lithium ion battery, which are in these electric vehicles. 
It had recently been detached from the car and stored in the parking lot. And what do you get? Well, there you are. You get that graphic footage that you've seen from the burnt out remains of five vehicles showing that mess, look at them, mess of tangled metal, burnt out cars, molten pieces of metal on the ground. Fire and Rescue New South Wales made a statement that, quote, these insights will assist in continually developing best practice for emergency responses to lithium related fires and informing industry on how to manage the risks associated with emerging technologies, unquote. I beg your pardon, assisting with the risks. This is coronavirus all over again. Swallow the rubbish preached by governments and know all ministers like Bowen with no risk assessment being done. Now this currently, and I was going to talk about Peggy uh, tonight about this, but we didn't get time. This is the raging criticism in America now of this bloke Fauci, America's public health czar, that Fauci was in a position to run a trial of these coronavirus vaccines, but he didn't. The public were never told the risks, never. And here we are with electric cars. Fire authorities have been warning of the dangers posed by lithium ion battery fires. There were apparently 213 suspected lithium ion related battery incidents attended by fire New South Wales last year. That's just in one state. But not a word uttered by those who are pushing all this renewable stuff down our throats about electric vehicles. Not a word about the risks. My advice is simple. I don't believe you can trust a word that Bowen says about energy policy. It's based on ideology and the fact that he knows everything. Your views don't count. Don't believe him or any of his mates either, Labor and Liberal, riding this renewable energy bandwagon. In relation to electric cars, do your own homework on lithium ion batteries. I'm always delighted at the opportunity to bring you something to our viewers who are right across the world, I might add, uh, something different. I've never told you this, but we've got a lot of viewers in Serbia because I supported Novak Djokovic. And as I said last night, Novak's the only person ever to be expelled from Australia for not taking drugs. So to all our Serbian viewers, good evening to you. I think you'll love this story. It is the story away from the hurly-burly and sadly the divisiveness of modern day politics. Remember last night, the remarkable Margaret Court and the tremendous work she's doing with the Margaret Court community outreach to help hundreds of thousands of needy people with food and clothing and love and hope. Now to help, I told you I'd give you that website tonight. It's mcco.org.au if you want to help in any way. MCCO, that's Margaret Court Community Outreach, mcco.org.au. But tonight, this is a change of direction. A remarkable story of a remarkable young Australian, shamefully still ignored. It's a biography of a Melbourne-born World War II secret agent, Bruce Dowding. The biography is a must-read secret agent unsung hero. It is co-authored by his nephew, the eminent lawyer and the 24th Premier of Western Australia, Peter Dowding. In the light of what we now know about his uncle, it is unsurprising that Peter Dowding, a senior counsel on being admitted to the bar in 1966, quickly became prominent representing conscientious objectives, objectors to conscription during the Vietnam War. As I said, he went on to become the 24th Premier of WA, but he's now co-author with Dr. Ken Spillman of this remarkable biography, Secret Agent, 
unsung hero. I'll speak to Peter Dowding in just a moment, and I'm sure you'll be fascinated by his insights, but we learn of his uncle, the World War II secret agent, Bruce Dowding, that he was a gifted all-round sportsman whose father had played Aussie rules for St Kilda. Bruce Dowding left Australia in January 1938, aged 23, to sail to France because of his excellence as a teacher at Melbourne's Wesley College, he'd been granted a month's study leave on full pay, a six month study leave on full pay, to complete a course in French language and civilization at the prestigious Sorbonne. The undoubting's letters to his family in suburban Glen, Glen Huntley in Melbourne paint a stirring picture of travel in the late 1930s. And the letters also reflect the determination of educated and artistic young Australians to make pilgrimages to the wellsprings of European culture, and thankfully, they are still doing it. But this biography provides a first-hand account of life in France before, during, and after the German invasion in May 1940. The authors of the biography, Peter Dowding, the nephew, and Dr. Ken Spillman, depict Bruce Dowding enjoying what's referred to as Paris's, they referred to the last dance as the citizens become resigned to the country's second German assault in one generation. For those of you of literary bent, the authors point out that Bruce Dowding arrived in Paris the year that the Irish dramatist Samuel Beckett was stabbed by a pimp and the novelist James Joyce provided Beckett with a private hospital room. As the authors reveal, Beckett dropped all charges because the assailant was courteous. There are fascinating insights in this wonderful story beyond the pivotal issue of Bruce Dowding and war. Bruce was apparently an avid cricket fan. He was at Lords to watch England. He went to Lords to watch England under Wally Hammond, play Bradman's Australians. When Hammond scored, listen to this, 210 not out on the first day of the second Ashes Test. Bruce Dowding returned to France, completed his studies at the Sorbonne, he befriended many in Parisian high society. He broke bread with Simone de Beauvoir, the French philosopher and feminine, a feminist activist, with the French visual artist Henri Matisse, and he reportedly ate and drank with Pablo Picasso. In spite of his obligations to Wesley College back home, and in spite of increasing international tensions, Bruce Dowding decided to stay in a city which was to him intoxicating. He took a teaching position as an assistant English master at a school 270 kilometres south of Paris. And in his spare time, he read the complete works of Shakespeare in French. But the outbreak of World War II provoked in Bruce Dowding a moral crisis. Let's now bring in the co-author, the nephew, the lawyer and former WA Premier, Peter Dowding. Peter, thank you for your time and congratulations. It's a magnificent story, splendidly written. But at the outbreak of World War II, your uncle Bruce would have been 25. You talk about the moral crisis for him because he was raised as a pacifist. How did that reflect on the way he was subsequently to behave? Well, he was, thank you very much for having me, Alan. Um, well, he was very naughty. You know, the, 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 the uh, scene in Monty Python where the woman <laughs> says that he's just a naughty boy. Well, in a way he was because he stopped writing home. I think he was um, terribly conflicted between his obligations to come home, particularly the obligation he'd given to his mother uh, and his desire to help the French in the uh, facing the, the Germans as they were in the late part 
1939, and that was a big conflict. And so he shut off writing home to the family and set about trying to get A, into the French army, which he failed, and then to enrol in the British army as an interpreter, which was his idea, I think, of, of a, of a non-combatant uh, role that he could perform. And he joined the army and then wrote home and said, well, look, sorry, I can't come home. I've got obligations as I've joined the army. So he was then he was then posted uh, and and then captured during the, we, we're moving on a bit quickly here to the German invasion, but then the French and German governments, as you say in the book, negotiated an armistice that partitioned France, which we know from our history, into an occupied zone, and then Vichy France, which was basically the official French state, but it was a rump of France. Vichy, a small city in central France, but the Vichy government was essentially a puppet of the Germans. So tell me, uh, Peter, he was a prisoner in a prisoner of war camp, and then you say he crawled through a sewer and somehow made it to the safety of Marseille, which had been liberated by the free French forces. How did that happen? Tell us. Well, he made, he made it. We don't really know how he got from the prisoner of war camp to Marseille. We, we know that thousands, indeed millions of people, went from the north to the south, hoping for safety from the Germans. He went to Marseille. Uh, he, he was very a- accomplished in French. He passed as a Frenchman. He wouldn't have had any difficulty travelling south. And when he got south, um, he met up with a Scottish pastor who had taken over the Siemens, uh, uh, the Siemens building in Marseille, and he and the Scottish pastor, Caskey, uh, started to hide British servicemen who were fleeing from the north in the Siemens mission building, mm. uh, and that's how Bruce got into this organisation, which ended up essentially being funded by MI9. Yes. So, so just, coming, just come to me, because he was involved in the formation, you say, in the book of one of the most successful escape and evasion lines of the war. He he changed his name, didn't he, to Andre Mason. And then Andre worked, Mason. Mason, yes. yeah, and worked undercover for MI9, which is this secret branch of the British intelligence. Uh, he was second in command, wasn't he? Well, it's hard to give it a sort of uh, military-type description. He was very active. We know that he was working with everybody who uh, was in the organisation. Initially, there were uh, no, there was no particular structure to it. Eventually, a uh, guy called Garrow, senior officer, took it over as the uh, officer in charge, but they were all working together and eventually a Belgian uh, officer came into the mix, a guy called pa- uh, Albert Jaris, and uh, Bruce worked with all of those people and fundamentally he was the link between the mm. organisation and the Spanish Republicans yes. who were Getting out, helping people Franca. over the Yep. the Pyrenees, yes. and who were hoping to raise money essentially to go back and attack Franco. So what was the significance of these evasion lines? Because uh, your uncle was part of the creation of these evasion lines. Well, there were tens of thousands of servicemen initially who were fleeing south after the uh, Germans had overrun them and the ones who couldn't get off the 
coast in the big uh, lift off the coast of many of the soldiers and they fled south and they had to be fed and hidden and uh, clothed and so forth. So initially in the early part of 1930, uh, 1940, there were thousands of people fleeing south. But after that, it changed a bit. A smaller number came south who'd been hiding in the north they hadn't been able to get off in Dunkirk and French people had hidden them in their farms and their houses. And then later in 1940 and early in 41, flyers who were shot down over Germany and the occupied areas were also fleeing south. So there was quite a line of people coming all the time down from the north. There were, in the end, two major lines. There was Comet Line and what they called the Pat line after Pat, Patrick Pat, O'Leary, Pat, whose yeah. real name was Jerice, yeah. and there were a couple of other lines started up after time. But it was an attempt to get servicemen back into uh, war service because, of course, the government had invested money in training and their expertise as well as the human side of it. So they were very, very committed to getting people back over the Pyrenees through Spain and out to Gibraltar and back to right, the UK. Right. In addition to that... Sorry, sorry. Sorry. No, you keep going. In addition to that, there was a, a whole group of people fleeing the Nazi oppression, a lot of French intellectuals, Jewish intellectuals, and a, an American group called the uh, American... Uh, rescue organisation run by Varian Fry. They were also trying to get people out over the Pyrenees and eventually they and MI9 joined together, sharing a bit of money and, and a bit of resources and Bruce was working with both mm. those organisations. So you make the point in the book talking about MI9, uh, about the failure of British historians to recognise the importance of MI9 and the war effort of this cell of exiled opponents of Franco's dictatorship, which you've alluded to. Uh, they were based in Toulouse and then led by this Spanish Civil War anarchist, Francisco Ponzan Vidal. Uh, this extended, I mean, getting across the Pyrenees, you're right about getting across the Pyrenees, that was no easy hike then or now, or now or then, was it? I know, and, and in winter it was, it was horrifically Impossible. difficult. It, it was horrifically difficult. In in summer, it wasn't bad. If you ever saw Michael Porcillo's program about it, yes. um, I mean, he's a middle-aged bloke staggering across the top of the Pyrenees. You know how difficult it is even in summer. So uh, the, the, what we've tried to do is, is honour all the people that we came across in the story, but very few people had honoured the Spanish separatists because the British were so embarrassed, if you like, about their relationship with the anarchist Republican because they didn't want to upset Franco. Yeah. And so they hid the relationship that they had and the money that MI9 was providing them was in fact providing them with guns to attack Franco, mm. something they didn't want to talk about. And of course, Nancy Wake, you mentioned there too, we could talk about Nancy forever and a day. I knew Nancy very well. I've told you off air a couple of the Nancy Wake stories, some of which aren't repeatable <laughs> here, I've got to tell you. Uh, but this is the guts of it. At the end of 1941, 
Your uncle, you've mentioned about this Harold Cole. Your uncle was betrayed by this Harold Cole. There's a picture of Cole on our screen there now, who you consider, and the book talks about, one of the most infamous British traitors in World War II. Uh, this fellow that you see picture there now, he'd worked for the escape line in the north of France, but unbeknown to Peter's uncle, uh, Bruce Dowding, and others in the line's leadership, he'd been convicted of many petty crimes in London before the war. When found to have misappropriated MI9 funds intended, and Peter's already alluded to this, to support French helpers, in October 1941, Cole was summoned to Marseille and dismissed by Pat O'Leary, the new leader of the line. Now, <laughs> I understand, Peter, your uncle was present at that November, you write about this confrontation, where according to your book, O'Leary punched the traitor Cole so hard in the face that O'Leary broke his fist. <laughs> Must have been a big punch. That's right, he did. He, it was a hell of a punch. And uh, they did debate, uh, obviously not in Cole's hearing, but they did debate whether they would kill him then. Mm. And uh, Cole got away and escaped uh, to, uh, to first of all, to Toulouse and then went back up north. He, he was a philanderer, he was a thief, he was a con man yeah. and he had a number of women uh, online. One of them was in uh, the north, in Lille, and he went back up there and the Gestapo had been watching him and they picked him up and according to the interpreter who was present at his interrogation, he just simply coughed. He told the Gestapo everything. He yeah. wasn't put under any restraint yeah. or given all, any All the French helpers. He just, he just uh, revealed the identity of dozens of these French helpers, many of whom were executed uh, or and died. And he took the Gestapo, yeah. yes, yeah. and he took the Gestapo round, showing the Gestapo who they were. Yeah. The Gestapo picked them up. Bruce was one of them. He yeah. then uh, took the Gestapo down to Paris and they picked people up in Paris who'd been involved in the organisation. Bruce and his helpers in the north were immediately imprisoned. Right. So uh, he did, Bruce did, 18 months, Bruce did 18 months in Nazi prisons. And then you and your co-author, Ken Spillman, this is a lovely story. Recall Bruce, you talk about his celestial voice singing the hymn, Oh Holy Night as midnight church bells rang in Christmas Day 1942. So while your uncle did survive the bombing of Allied aircraft during the 1943 Battle of Ruhr, your uncle was tried as a result of coal spilling the beans as an enemy of the Reich, and he was executed by guillotine in Dortmund in June 1943. We've got a picture here. That's a drawing, by the way, which Peter has sent me of the guillotine used. Look at it by Germans, drawn by a fellow prisoner who actually escaped the guillotine. Um, Peter, mm. it must be hard for you to describe, let alone talk about the execution of your uncle as a young man at 29 years of age, just turned 29. It's very, look, it's very hard, Alan. I mean, I've done it, I've, done, I've talked about it a lot over time when, when it's been necessary, but it's still very moving. I mean, there were, there were nine of people, uh, Frenchmen uh, and my uncle executed between 7 and 7.30 in the evening. And um, it's an horrific thought, a, a really horrific thought. The, the priest who attended the execution, um, Father Steinhoff, 
secretly recorded who the men were because they were under a, a regime called NNN, a sort of Guantanamo Bay. They were they were meant to have disappeared and exist only by a number. Uh, and Steinhoff no noted down who they were and where their families were. And after the war, he wrote a letter to family doubting Melbourne, Australia, saying what had happened to Bruce because the family didn't know mm. and uh, and told them that he died very bravely and that at the last minute he'd uh, asked Steinhoff to to baptise him into Catholicism because he felt that that was the way he could face his death best. Mm. He had his two two comrades there who are remembered as Carpentier, uh, as heroes of the French resistance. Um, they were beheaded, by the way, on the same day. Um, Hitler, Hitler, Hitler issued this decree. Uh, this is... Um, talking to my viewers here so that we know this in December 1941, covering the point that Bruce has just made, because uh, Peter's just made, because the purpose of that was to defy international convention and make enemies of the Reich vanish just without trace. So basically, Bruce yeah. Dowding, Peter's uncle, his fate remained unknown until 1946. Um, how did his parents and your father, the siblings, how did they react to this and how did they react when they found out? Oh, well, look, initially, I mean, the family was was terribly upset about his absence and, of course, uh, and his mother in particular became very depressed and, and eventually became ill and died. Um, when I was born, they were still grieving because they had no knowledge of what had happened. They named my cousin, who's a year older than I am, they named him Bruce Dowding, um, and just to indicate, my brother was called Simon Bruce Dowding. So Bruce was was omnipresent in the family's mind, and it they searched for him. They wrote to the Red Cross. They wrote to the army. They wrote to people who they thought might be able to help. And it wasn't until, as you say, nineteen forty six, they actually found out mm. um, uh, at least what had happened in Broadbrush. Uh, and more detailed, not until 1947, when, funnily enough, uh, a, a newspaper that was then published in Hobart called the Hobart Voice published a, a series that had been, um, say, uh, what do you call it, when a, a newspaper picks up articles from a whole yeah, range of other yeah. places. Syndicated. Uh, they picked, yeah, syndicated. They picked up a syndicated story by... Uh, Jerice under Pat O'Leary's uh, nom de plume, uh, uh, which talked about his organisation and mentioned Bruce. And that's the first the family really knew of the organisation well, and what Bruce had done. Well, this is the disturbing story because every other day we talk here, don't we, about the way our veterans are treated, uh, abandoned, ignored, unacknowledged. We also talk about the indifference of government, the unpreparedness of government to do any homework about coming to appropriate conclusions. Posthumously, the French government listed Bruce Dowding for the awards of Croix de Guerre and Légion d'Honneur, two big awards. The approval was needed of the Commonwealth of Australia. This man you're looking at now, Peter Dowding, his uncle's name was unknown. Of course it was unknown in the armed forces. Government officials expressed no interest in doing any homework to find out who Bruce Dowding was. The same happened to Nancy Wake, who wrote, Bruce was proud of being Australian 
but he had acquired the polish of a sophisticated European. His death was a particularly nasty one. Now, I've got a picture here, by the way. That's Bruce and Nancy. Bruce is second from the left on that picture, and that's Nancy in that picture, Nancy third. Nancy eventually received her Légion d'honneur in 1970, and John, John Howard approached me to speak to Nancy. He knew I knew Nancy quite well about accepting an Australian government honour. I won't tell you what Nancy first said, but eventually that <laughs> happened. But despite Bruce Dowding's crucial role in the rescue of hundreds of Allied servicemen <coughs> and so many others, his valour and ultimate sacrifice have never been acknowledged. Now, Peter, former Labor Premier of WA, you've got Labor connections. Can't you repair that now? I believe you've already, <laughs> by this government, been given a no. We have, we have, Alan, and it's very disappointing. I, I, I must say there are, there are two threads to it. I mean, one thread is, well, he wasn't an Australian serviceman, but he wasn't acting as a serviceman. He was acting as an Australian, really, uh, doing the work that he was doing. And uh, I guess the second thing is that uh, th there are awards for people who've done heroic things. We're not so much interested in in the, the, the sort of ego of the award, but really the recognition for people yes, who do brave things. Absolutely. And I think we need to absolutely. we need to honour them. That's why I'm talking to you. But as you say, mm. no no links will work for me at the moment. <laughs> I've got to say that in an epilogue to Secret Agent Unsung Hero, and I repeat, that's why I'm talking to Peter Dowding tonight, these stories need to be known by Australians and people beyond Australia, people who are listening to this program all over the world. In an epilogue to Secret Agent Unsung Hero, Peter Dowding writes of a meeting in France with Jean-Claude Dupre, the son of the resistance hero, Francois Dupre, who was one of Bruce's mates. And after hearing, I mean, this is Peter talking to the son, after hearing that his comrade, Bruce Dowding, had been denied a Légion d'honneur, Dupre was so appalled that in May 2013, he gave his father's medallion, I think, am I right saying, Peter, to your family. He did, he did. That, and, and when you talk about emotional moments, that was a very emotional moment. Mm. It mm. was a really wonderful thing of him to do. And, uh, and we embraced uh, and, uh, and thought for a minute about our respective relatives uh, and their bravery and their end. Well, let me offer my postscript, Peter. It is about time Bruce Dowding, Dowding's outstanding contribution to the Allied cause in World War II received appropriate recognition. And certainly, I'll be talking to a few people. Whether I'll have any more success than you have, I don't know. But Peter, thank you for your time. <laughs> Let's keep in touch. And you can come on the program again to tell me that you have been successful in getting your Labor mates <laughs> to belatedly recognise your courageous and committed right. uncle. Thank you for your time. The biography okay, Secret thank you, Agent, Alan. Unsung Hero by Peter Dowding, the nephew, and Dr Ken Spillman. Well, before we go, I've been talking a lot recently about the fate of the Liberal Party. It is serious stuff because many voters out there, especially young people, don't see the Liberal Party responding to their concerns. In recent times, the Liberal Party have just been the Labor Party with a different name, running around with a campaign of Me Tooism. Whatever Labor does, oh, we can do better. We race off to Glasgow, climate change, all this nonsense. Instead of highlighting the fact that much of what Labor does is not advancing the well-being of this country. In fact, it's putting it at risk. 
Young people write to me almost every day. They complain about political parties saying at election time, vote for me. But as things stand today, tonight, those young people will never have a stake in this country. Owning one square yard of land is unaffordable. Not one political leader, but predominantly, that should be someone on the Liberal side. No one can say how a 35-year-old, let alone a 25-year-old, could ever, in the current environment, without the mum and dad bank, could ever afford his or her own home. Pay off your hex debt, I've talked about this over and over again. Pay rent, and then you're meant to find a $100,000 deposit for a $500,000 home that you may not want to live in anyway. May well be unlivable. But the overarching concern by many young people is this constant talk about war and China and Taiwan and AUKUS submarines. The young ones are writing about this. I had a letter from a young person today who said to me, if Dutton is not willing to send his two sons into conflict, then I don't want to hear about it. He said the Liberals, including Hastie and Patterson, who are considered the next generation, need to stop warmongering, stop pushing our values systems onto countries that don't want them. And the writer pointed out to me that while Henry Kissinger, the former United States Secretary of State, 100 years old, but still an esteemed geopolitical consultant, a national security advisor to at least two presidents, he was the one who negotiated the ceasefire in the Vietnam War, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, there he is on your screen. Well, my young correspondent, who's reading a bit of Henry Kissinger, said that Kissinger in his book points out that China had the most advanced navy before Europeans did, but never used it and never got involved in colonising other countries. They were heavily into trade. Kissinger makes the point, which my young correspondent had picked up from reading Kissinger's latest book, that China never beat their chests about how good their institutions are, while every day here, we see the failure of our own. And the smart young man said to me, Dutton needs to learn that China produced a greater share of total world GDP than any Western nation of the last 20 centuries. Now, China was once known as the Middle Kingdom with over 5,000 years of history. China's the oldest surviving civilization in history. And this is the point my correspondent was making. We need China to trade with. We've got people shaping our future with seemingly no understanding of history and even less of an understanding of what impact their decisions will have on the lives of young people whose vote they seek. Ukraine worries young people. Kissinger said months ago, I mean, look at the devastation here. Kissinger said months ago that it's time to broker a deal over the land allegedly taken by Russia from Ukraine. Yet the young ones say, the world keeps supplying weapons and bankrolling another lengthy war where people are dying. Now, I'm a Boris Johnson supporter, but Boris loves it because they named streets after him in Ukraine. The much maligned Trump is winning votes, speaking the young people's language in one simple sentence, we have to stop the killing, let alone the devastation of the country. But as the young ones also say to me, you make those sorts of comments in the presence of Liberals and you're cancelled. Hence they say, it's tough work getting young people on board when what the Liberal Party represents currently has little relevance to them. Well, that's it from me this week. I mentioned last night how you can contribute to the Margaret Court Community Outreach. The best way to donate or help 
is just go to the, the website, mcco, that's Margaret Court Community Outreach, .org.au, mcco.org.au. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. Thank you for being with ADH. I am Alan Jones and until next week, good night.